Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, New Perspectives in the Treatment of Advanced Skin Cancer, Advanced Basal Cell, and Squamous Cell Cancers. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 253 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Belgium, Canada, Germany, India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And uh, today's program uh, is supported by Regeneron and Sanofi Genzyme, and we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, now, before we actually start the program, I'm going to uh, ask uh, all of you to um, participate in a few uh, questions um, um, uh, that relate to this uh, call today. So I'm going to start with the first question, and it helps us to get a sense of what you know coming into the program. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest, your rating, which one the highest rating, and and five, the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand new treatment approaches and, emerging, and the emerging role of targeted therapy and genomics in advanced basal cell cancers and advanced squamous cell cancers. And again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the second question is, I understand the importance of participating in clinical trials. Again, the rating, one is the highest rating, five is the lowest rating. The third question is, I know how to manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain. Again, one is the highest rating, and five is the lowest rating. And then the next to last question is, I know the tips for caring for skin during cancer treatments. Again, one is the highest rating, and five is the lowest rating. And the last question is, I know sun, wind, and cold weather safety tips to care for my skin. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. Okay, well, I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us a great deal to have a better understanding, and I'm planning uh, future programs as well, so thank you very much. And now, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor, Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing an overview of advanced skin cancers, including advanced basal cell cancers and advanced squamous cell cancers, standard of care, new treatment approaches, including immunotherapy, the emerging role of targeted therapy and genomics, clinical trial updates, how research contributes to your treatment options, managing treatment side effects, discomfort and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. 
So it's now my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's indeed an honor and a pleasure to, to be able to, to participate in this uh, program and to be able to speak to you all today. Uh, we're going to speak about uh, uh, what we call a non-melanoma skin cancer, spe specifically basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And we're going to talk about them sort of almost in a group, but remember there are distinct uh, differences between them. And where to divert, I'll try to point these things out. So what are these cancers? These are cancers from skin, and the name talks about where the primary cancer comes from. So basal cell carcinoma comes from the basal cells found at the junction between the overlying superficial layers of the skin and the deeper layers of the skin uh, at the epidermal junction, as they say. Squamous cells are cells that make up the actual skin covering itself. These cells have the ability to to not just propagate within the skin and repopulate the skin, but they also uh, become, die and become keratinized, and then they are the stuff that sort of, uh, that sort of provides a protective layer. When you take a bath and you look around the bathtub, the rim around the bathtub, that stuff that sloughs off the skin, that's keratin, and those are the debris from squamous cells. So both of these cells serve a purpose to really make up skin for what it is. And uh, and so the basal cell carcinomas come from uh, cancers that, uh, that come from basal cells, and squamous cell carcinomas come from cancers that come from the squamous cells. And they look distinctly under the microscope, uh, and so that's the, the number one way of making a diagnosis. How they show, show up in people's skin is they, both of them invariably make nodules. They make a bump, a nodule in the skin. And, and for the most part, <clears throat> they are uh, uh, lesions or tumors of the skin that, uh, that begin in the skin and are uh, initially very superficial. And that's a reason to really participate with your dermatologist in keeping an eye on your skin. And I tell everyone on the line, you know, the, the number one defense against skin cancer is you. To look at yourself uh, when you're out of the shower or the bath, and frightening as it sounds, and to look at yourself when you're naked, and so you can see uh, what's going on. And the most important thing is that things that change in the skin are worthy of attention. And in this day of, of cell phones, what I tell all my patients, if they have a suspicious lesion, take a picture. And I tell them to take a picture um, in the same conditions. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, take it uh, uh, by a window where the natural light of the sun provides the same sort of illumination for your uh, for your skin lesion. Why? Because we want to know the changes in color, in texture, in pigmentation, and having the same illumination really helps. And then, you know, in this day of cell phone, one of the things I tell my patients is bring, this, bring in your uh, phone, show me the picture, and we can see change. That's very important. And that's the beginning of how we make these diagnoses. So recognition and, and uh, in a dermatologist's office, appropriate removal and examination under a microscope are sort of the, the workflow of how we manage these things. And for the most part, um, uh, very few of these lesions actually come to me as a medical oncologist. I'm a, I'm a medical oncologist. I treat patients with medicines for their invasive or advanced cancers. For the most part, it's important to realize, for the most part, the vast majority of these cancers, basal cells and squamous cells, are simply handled in a dermatologist's office with very simple local removal. How do you know it's more than that? Well, sometimes the location makes it difficult, and Dr. Lukacu will probably talk about uh, lesions in more cosmetically uh, uh, challenging areas of the body. Or sometimes by looking under a microscope, we see features that we know are associated with more uh, aggressive behaviors. And those are things that are discussed with you uh, with uh, the dermatologist. Now, I want to talk about treatment about the advanced lesions. So I'm going to talk about those uh, lesions which are the advanced ones. They are a fraction of the common ones. So you've, uh, it's very common for people to have had a basal cell or squamous cells, and for the most part, that's not you. Uh, but for those small number of individuals which have a more aggressive lesion or have a more advanced lesion which has really you know, uh, uh, undergone some aggressive behavior, what do you mean by that? Sometimes they've grown large enough that they become more difficult to resect. Sometimes they've gone deep enough that they have to 
uh, you know, be resected in very specialized ways, or sometimes in rare circumstances they've gone beyond that into local structures like the lymph nodes, which are adjacent to uh, these cancer areas, or even into deeper structures. And for those latter two circumstances where they've gone to lymph nodes or they've gone to deeper parts of your body, that's when a medical oncologist becomes more active. And those are the ones I want to focus a little bit of attention to because although they make up a very small proportion of the entire spectra, uh, uh, population of people with these cancers, they're the ones in, uh, which require more help and more aggressive maneuvers and more elaborate maneuvers. And what are those? Well, you know, Dr. Messner talked about things like target therapies and new treatments. I want to wrap them together. Uh, we have known for the longest time that you know, aberrations in the DNA, aberrations in the gene of these uh, cells cause them to become cancerous. We know that sometimes you can have these aberrations and, and mutations occur when, you have, when people have had excessive sun exposure. That's one of the major risk factors for both squamous and basal cells. We, and what part of that? Ultraviolet radiation. So in individuals who by circumstance, by occupation, um, or by other means of exposure, have had a lot of sun exposure. And those are people with blistering sunburns in your youth, especially around puberty, multiple sunburns throughout your lives. Um, that, that, that is a risk factor for both basal cell and squamous cells. And one of the things that we have known is that these, these cells can sometimes have specific mutations that cause them to become cancerous. A very specific example is in basal cell carcinoma well, we know that the majority <clears throat> of these basal cell cancers um, really are ignited by an aberration in the genes uh, that uh, are, are part of a pathway called hedgehog pathway. Now, where do these names come from? Uh, the hedgehog pathway comes from the fact that this was a gene discovered during a uh, decade ago during investigations of, of how uh, are we develop as individuals in our mommy's tummy, how an embryo develops. And the initial studies were done in fruit flies. And you saw that there was an aberration in a gene that made the fruit fly's wing have this sort of weird uh, serrated appearance like the hedgehog would, uh, like the, the, head, um, the, the, um, uh, the hair of a hedgehog. And therefore, it was given the word hedgehog. And it turns out that this, the genes that are in that pathway are involved in how cells grow and how cells differentiate, and that's a pathway that becomes aberrant and, and mutated in basal cell carcinoma. So individual pathways are specific to individual cancer. So this hedgehog pathway I'm going to talk to you about for the next uh, minute or so really has to do with basal cell carcinomas. And once you crack that code, uh, then it looks like uh, uh, our ability to manipulate the hedgehog using hedgehog inhibitors uh, became one of the mainstay of treating basal cell carcinoma. It, it was a breakthrough to know that that's the case. And what are these inhibitors? They're basically pills that people can take and, and uh, they're highly efficacious uh, in uh, stopping the growth of and often reversing and reducing the basal cell cancer tumors. Again, I'm talking about a very specific subset. Only those individuals with the advanced disease or, or large tumors or metastatic basal cell carcinomas, not for those that, that for the, uh, which make up the vast majority of patients, uh, which can be simply handled in a dermatologist's office. So, now, uh, so when someone shows up in my office with advanced basal cell carcinoma or metastatic basal cell carcinoma, our major consideration will be given to the use of these hedgehog inhibitors. Uh, there are two of them which are FDA-approved. When I say FDA-approved, what I mean is that they have passed through clinical trials. They're Data has been analyzed by scientists and their and physician peers, and they've been found to be efficacious and, to the extent that we know about them, safe. And then they're given indications. In other words, the FDA approves them for use in certain specific situations. Hedgehog inhibitors, two of which are FDA approved, uh, vismotigib and sonetigib, these are the generic names of these drugs, uh, are, have passed through this, uh, this approval process. And they're used in advanced basal cell carcinoma. And they are the primary way in which we're using to, uh, primary way of therapy to attack this cancer. 
we have not had the same success identifying uh, uh, these sort of uh, driver-specific mutations in squamous cell carcinoma. And so that has been a real problem. And in the past, we have used chemotherapy to try to attack squamous cell carcinoma. Again, the advanced ones, the metastatic ones, not the ones that are handled in a dermatologist's office, which makes up the vast majority of these. But more recently, several years ago, we have found that these particular cancers, squamous cell carcinomas, are sensitive to the use of immune therapy. Now, immune therapy is an area of oncology which has just come to the forefront. It's been one of the major developments in oncology, and it's really become the frontline therapy for not just uh, this particular skin cancer, but for many other cancers, including melanoma, Merkel cell, lung cancers, bladder cancer, renal cell cancer, classic Hodgkin's lymphoma. I can go on and on. What is immune therapy? It's medicine given, which uh, uses the patient's body to activate the immune system to fight the cancer. Crazy but true. These drugs themselves have no direct effect against the cancer. It is, however, they work on, your, on the patient's body to activate their immune system so that the, the, person's, the patient's immune system can, can turn around and attack the cancer. Why is that important? Because if we could get your body's immune system to recognize the cancer as foreign, then we have the possibility of long-term uh, control of the cancer and long-term control is a first step in cure. So for the first time, we've been able to really get a handle on these on squamous cell carcinomas and curing these cancers. And remarkably, uh, just about two weeks ago, the FDA gave its approval for the use of immunotherapy in basal cell carcinoma. So now basal cell, two weeks ago, has now joined with squamous cell carcinoma as being uh, skin cancers that can be uh, treated using immune therapy. That, this information is brand new and uh, has just happened, and it's exciting because it's in basal cell, it gives us you know, two very good tools to attack the cancer, one being the use of these hedgehog inhibitors, these pills, and the second one being immune therapy. So what is immune therapy? These are medicines given by intravenous, uh, which go in every several weeks, there are different ones that are applied, and their major uh, uh, point of attack is by activating that person's immune system to fight the cancer. And so let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, because it's so prevalent in oncology now, and it's one of the very hot areas, uh, you know, a few minutes about the side effects of uh, immune therapy is very important. The overarching concept is that the side effects of immune therapy are all related to, the, to that person's immune system activating and fighting not just the cancer, but that person's own body, their own tissue. Uh, what, what happens with these medicines is that we take the foot off the brake. Our body's immune system is naturally uh, turned off. Otherwise, you'd be reacting to everything in the world around you. But when you take the foot off the brake and, and allow it to attack the cancer, with some of the side effects are it can attack yourself. And what I tell my patients is that, um, that any tissue in, that, in your body can be affected by this. We do have a list of more common areas, so we pay very close attention to uh, uh, the GI tract, the colon to be exact, and the lungs. Why? Because these are areas in which the immune system is usually very tightly clamped down. And when you release it, these are areas in which you can get inflammation. So inflammation of the colon is known as colitis. Inflammation of the lung is known as pneumonitis. These are things we look for, watch for, test for, because those are two areas which are particularly problematic. But I remind you again, as I, as I say to my own patients, any tissue can be affected. So a typical appointment to, to get immune therapy involves getting some blood work so we can look for indexes, index of inflammation that, in, that affects people internally. And I, I get my team or myself to look the patient in the eye, have a great conversation with them to understand what's going on before we release them for therapy. And that segues to you know, communicating uh, with the team uh, and that's a very important part. Um, one of the things uh, I told Dr. Mesner I really want to talk about is in this era of COVID with virtual meetings and, tele and telephone meetings with my patients and with our patients and how you interact with your doctor, you know, we have to sort of uh, reestablish how we are going to deal with each other. 
one of the things about immunotherapy that's very important is because, you know, unlike chemotherapy, uh, in which the side effects are very predictable. So I've made a joke to my team uh, in a very joking way. I would say to them, boy, I really miss the old chemotherapy days. I could set my clock by when side effects are going to happen. Immune therapy is very different because we are, we, everyone is an individual. And how your immune system is is a product of everything that's happened in your life, uh, your, your makeup, your exposure to the outside world, what you've done uh, to react to that. That has educated your immune system to be what it is. And because of that, uh, it's not entirely predictable when side effects can happen or what kind of side effects can happen. So the essential thing is, uh, to understand how you can get hold of your healthcare team if necessary, right? What is the phone number you reach? How do you get hold of someone in, you know, in off hours? How do you get hold of someone if you have questions during the week? Is it electronically? What if it's more urgent? These are things you have to think through, especially since we're not seeing each other face-to-face. I tell folks that because it can affect any tissue, the symptoms are not textbook. It's not like, ah, it's this thing happening or it's that thing happening. Oftentimes people use very vague symptoms like I'm not really feeling well, like ouch, that's hard for the doctor. But then it's our job to really start parsing through that, right? So I tell folks one of the things that's important is to keep a diary. You'll say things like I'm having some loose stool and diarrhea. I will say, oh, how often is that happening? Right? It's a standard question. So sometimes just writing things down or having a – uh, a little checklist, right? Or you, or and I tell folks sometimes it's important to even prime the meeting to get your doctor aware. I tell my patients if you have something really you want to discuss, sometimes help me out. Just send a message through. We uh, here at MD Anderson we use the my chart system. Send a message through my chart. Tell me what you really really want to talk about. So I'll be ready for it. So sometimes we'll talk. We'll have these conversations about about these uh, uh, these sort of symptoms that people are having. So. Uh, here are some important things, words like, I am really worried about. Uh, uh, what should I expect? Right? What are you, the doctor, what are you worried about? Right? So, Because I, I tell patients, you know, here are the things I'm really worried about. And, and, right? and, or I tell them, here's what I'm expecting. I say, this, this, and this should happen. If you have anything else happening, that's not what I'm expecting. That's a phone call. Right? An example is, I tell them, I, you know, this is immunotherapy. It should not give, it's not like chemotherapy. You should not be throwing up. You should not be sick. The infusion itself should go fairly well. You shouldn't feel any different one minute after the infusion as, per, as opposed to one minute before the infusion. If that's not the case, that's a phone call. So having an idea of what your doctor is expecting is very important as well. And when things don't go well, you, you shouldn't be afraid to say things like, you know, I don't think I can go on because or something like that. Right? Give us because I can't see your eyes, I can't read your body language. So you have to be almost more uh, uh, forthright with it, and don't be afraid to interrupt. I, when I'm talking to someone, I look at their eyes, look at their face to see if they have something to say. But sometimes, if I can't see you or we're on video and I just don't have a good look at you, I don't know if you have a question or not. So interrupt. Trust me. Uh, most of us, are, uh, especially doing teleconferences, are not going to sit there offended by your forthrightness. We would like that, right? I say to everyone, no one has ever died of embarrassment, right? Uh, and so just just fire away, right? And the other thing that's important is to really get a sense of what you're, not just what your doctor is expecting, what, what are the things, the long-term goals? You know, what are we trying to do here? And so having that conversation with your doctor and your healthcare team is very important because it, it sort of provides a context for all the things that are going on. So in the final minute, I want to just end by this, that there's so many new things happening in these non-melanoma skin cancers, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma. And again, the most, for the most part, the vast majority of these are easily handled in a dermatologist's office. But for the longest time, we've had really poor choices when we needed more than that, when we needed to deal with the advanced or metastatic situation. But now we have some great uh, uh, tools, some great medicines, and uh, with the advent of immunotherapy, finally sort of, you know, a routine expectation that we can cure people even with these advanced cancers. But it isn't easy. And a major takeaway from uh, what I want to leave you with you today is work with your healthcare team, especially during these virtual uh, COVID times. Be more forthright. 
you know, and uh, don't ever be afraid to sort of uh, tell people what you need. We cannot read your body language. And at that, I'll, I'll turn it over back to Dr. Mesner. I, I'd be very happy to uh, take any questions following uh, the, uh, later on in the program. Thanks again. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really superb. Just a wonderful, really a wonderful presentation on really on uh, on the new treatments for uh, for advanced skin cancers, advanced basal cell and squamous cell cancers, and and just um, really going through um, some of the side effects that people might experience. I know there'll be questions about that also during the Q and A. So thank you so much. I, I know you will be getting questions uh, definitely during the Q and A. Lots of wonderful advances. So. Uh, thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Mario Lacatour. Dr. Lacatour is Director, Oncodermatology Program, Dermatology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Dermatology, Wallach Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Lacatour will be addressing tips for caring for your skin during cancer treatments, sun, wind, and cold weather safety tips, guidelines for communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lacatour. Thank you very much, Carolyn, for the introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here today discussing these important topics. I will be speaking on taking care of your skin during treatment, and tips that may make your treatment and your response to your treatments more tolerable and improve your quality of life as well as your sense of well-being. So as Dr. Wong has mentioned, novel therapies that activate your immune system or block specific mechanisms of cancer have revolutionized the treatment of advanced basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas. Importantly, since these are cancers that are present on the skin, treatments against these types of cancer will also affect the skin in the form of dry skin, itching, rashes, and sensitivity to the sun primarily. Therefore, it is important to maintain the most optimal health of your skin so that any adverse effect is more easily tolerated. So one of the important things to keep in mind is that if you live in warm weather, to always protect your skin against sun exposure. And this can be done with the use of clothing, broad-brimmed hats, or the use of a sunscreen with a sun protection factor of at least 30 applied every two hours when outside unexposed areas of the body. This is most important between the times of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Now, if you live in cold weather environments, it's important to remember that the cold weather also results in a loss of humidity in the air. And what this can result in is that it can result in your skin being drier than usual. And dry skin is important for various reasons. Number one, it doesn't function properly as the barrier it's supposed to be by maintaining heat in your body. Secondly, dry skin is more susceptible to any irritation coming from the outside. And third, dry skin may also result in inflammation and associated itching leading to scratching and the potential for a secondary infection associated with those scratched areas. Therefore, moisturizing the skin is key for people that lived in cold environments, especially when receiving treatments like immunotherapies or targeted therapies. So to maintain moisturization in the skin, there are several key elements. The first is using a fragrance-free soap in the shower or bath, using lukewarm water, and avoiding long, hot showers with soaps that contain fragrances or perfumes. Secondly, when washing your clothes, using a detergent that is devoid, again, of fragrances or perfumes. 
So perfumes that are clear of scents are ideal because they cause less irritation or dryness on the skin. And then finally, having a humidifier in the house may also be beneficial for people who live in these cold environments. And in terms of the use of moisturizers, this is something that is frequently asked because it is not easy and it may be time-consuming for most people. In addition, there are many people that have never used a moisturizer before in their lives, and now they are asked by their oncologist or their dermatologist to start using a moisturizer because their treatments can result in um, a higher degree of dry skin. There are several tips that I recommend so that applying a moisturizer is more tolerable in the long term. The first is obtain a moisturizer that also does not contain strong scents or perfumes. Secondly, obtain moisturizers that come as lotions or sprays as they are more easily applied onto large areas of the skin. And for those that may have some limitation in their mobility, it's easier to apply in areas such as the feet, lower legs, or even the back. So moisturizing sprays are, are uh, tolerated very well and liked by many people because they are easy to spread and they do not leave a significant residue. They do not leave the skin greasy or oily after you apply them. And you can obtain these online or at your local pharmacy. Now, in addition to this, it, it is also important to protect your skin when you go outside in the very cold or dry weather and to remember that if it's a sunny day, even if it's cold, you can also develop a sunburn. So protect your skin during those days. And being inside, if it's also a sunny day, you can experience a sunburn because the ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun can penetrate window glass in your car or in your own home. So be careful between the times of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., especially if it's uh, very sunny. Now, in this era of COVID, uh, the use of telemedicine have, has become increasingly important. And when receiving treatment with an immunotherapy or a targeted therapy, it will be key to inform your doctor early and frequently of any symptoms you may encounter. So telemedicine has played an important role in this case. If you are going to be having telemedicine visits with your doctor, try to be in a place that is quiet that does not have uh, a lot of people around, where you can concentrate on the visit. Be ready to show your doctor any creams or medications that you are using or applying onto your skin so that they know what you are applying and what things may need to be changed. Also, ensure that if there is a video component to the telemedicine visit, that you are in a computer with a camera or in a phone that also has a camera and that there is good lighting in the room that you are located in. Also, if there are any areas of the body that you would like to show your doctor, be ready to remove your clothes so that the doctor can see those areas that you are affected by. If these areas are not easy to reach, you can ask a family member to be there with you so that they can point the camera towards those areas of the body in which you may be experiencing any symptoms. And always remember to inform your doctor of any medications that you are taking, so keeping a list of medications that you are taking and when you started taking them is key and will allow your doctor to better care for any conditions that you may be uh, experiencing. In the forthcoming years, the use of telemedicine and telehealth will become increasingly important documenting the symptoms that you may be experiencing so that you can relay it, these symptoms during your visit is going to be key. And also keeping, again, a list of the medications that you are taking. If you are one of those people that don't like taking or writing lists, maybe taking photos with your phone on the medications that you are taking so that you can show them to your doctor later on would be something that you can do if you are seeing them in person or if you can store the photos in another location so that you can remember them. But most important of all, remember that your oncology team is there to care for you, to give you uh, treatment that will uh, 
prevent any additional uh, problems or complications, whereas uh, treating uh, the condition uh, for which that drug is being administered. Treatments for cancer have improved significantly over the past five to 10 years in basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And most of the adverse events that may occur can be managed by your doctor if they are treated early on and with enough both visual as well as time-related information. So keep your doctors informed of your progress, care for your skin by treating it gently with sun protection and protection from the dry uh, weather that may be occurring if you live in cold environments. And remember that as being part of the team with your doctor that has the best intentions in mind, the best outcome will be achieved. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lugator. That was really wonderful and very comprehensive. And I think it gives everyone a very clear idea of really the importance of really caring for your skin. That's really important. A lot of excellent tips. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to say a few words now about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I'd like to review with you, um, because we do know that you, many of you on the call would like to get access to, um, you know, services and help um, from uh, nonprofit organizations. So Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization. Um, we are staffed by oncology social workers, and uh, we offer a range of services from, and you can call us on our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673, or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. So in terms of the services you can access, uh, first of all, you can actually um, receive support from our oncology social workers. We also offer a number of online support groups that many people find very supportive and helpful. Um, in addition, we also have case management services in which we really help uh, you to problem solve um, issues that you're trying to cope with practical things often um, and that we not only listen to the problems that you have but we actually link you to resources and take you there and be sure the problem is solved and if it isn't we'll keep we'll stay with you until that problem is solved um, we offer a practical and financial and co-payment assistance as well which would be very helpful in this it always has been very helpful, but particularly in this era right now um, when people are feeling particularly uh, uh, challenged with, with finances and concerns. We offer, of course, these education workshops, and we also offer publications uh, at the Cancer Care website. Um, so that um, those are basically um, the, the major services that we provide at Cancer Care. And now, before we take questions from our um, our speakers, um, again, I'm just going to ask you just a few questions, and then I'm going to take questions from um, for, from all of you for our speakers. Um, so um, I'm going to start with the first question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have a greater knowledge about new treatment approaches and the emerging role of targeted therapy and genomics in advanced basal cell cancers and advanced squamous cell cancers. And again, you're going to rate this. So one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in the workshop, in this workshop, I am more willing to consider participating in clinical trials. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel greater confidence in what to do to manage treatment side effects, discomfort, and pain. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And just two more questions. This is for uh, 
As a result of this, what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in using the tips provided for caring for skin during cancer treatments. Again, one is the highest rating, five is the lowest rating. And the last question, as a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in using sun, wind, and cold weather safety tips provided by the speakers to care for my skin. The highest rating, again, is one, and the lowest rating is five. Now, thank you so much, um, for participating in this, these questions. And now um, we do have time for questions um, from all of you. And so uh, we are going to uh, start taking your questions. Um, so um, I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, and um, the question, um, a question for Dr. Um, Wong. Um, do both these skin cancers that are caused um, by being on chemo for blood cancer be treated the same way? So, so the question is, uh, are the cancers caused by being on chemo for blood cancers treated the same way? Is that what I heard? I think that is, yes, that is the question. Yeah. So um, I'm going to take a little bit of license with this question because, you know, the treatment for blood cancers by themselves directly um, don't usually cause um, cancers of the skin, which is what we're dealing with today. But we do know that people who have had uh, uh, long-term problems with immunity have had issues with a higher risk of, of skin cancer. Um, and we believe that's because of the fact that uh, our immune system uh, serves as a guardian against uh, cancers developing. That's at least one of the theories. And uh, so in, in those individuals in which we have um, uh, skin cancers come up in that context by either what we call intrinsic um, immune aberrations. People sometimes are born with immune systems that are uh, that are sort of uh, less optimal, uh, or because of sort of treatments, long-term treatments for cancer, which can alter the immune system. We take those at a case-by-case -case basis. Obviously, it depends exactly what skin cancer it is, what the context is, what the underlying immune system is before the medicines were given. And honestly, uh, uh, I take them almost as a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, one case at a time. My first phone call when I see these patients, sometimes even before I see them, is to make a phone call or correspond with their treating oncologist or treating hematologist to see what is exactly that's been going on. It's, it's, oftentimes these are not situations that occur immediately, but after some time on treatment. So the waxing and waning of things, the, the, the instigation and the uh, dose modification or the um, uh, uh, discontinuation of medications all have a context to them. So these are very complicated cases, and that's the best I can say. Um, uh, these are almost all treated, like I said, as a one uh, at a time sort of situation. Excellent, thank you. Um, so there are some questions here about the COVID vaccine, and I actually, Dr. Um, Wong, I'm going to, uh, it looks like there are two specifically almost the same, so let me um, read them to you. Um, does COVID vaccination, from one of our online participants, um, does COVID vaccination cause additional side effects for people with basal cell carcinoma slash Gorlin? Okay, so, uh, so for the folks in the line, Gorlin syndrome is a uh, genetic condition which predisposes people to um, uh, basal cell carcinoma. It is, in fact, an aberration in that hedgehog pathway that we talked about. To our best knowledge, uh, we do not 
so let me, when I say it to what do you mean by that? So uh, the major cancer centers in this country, including the one that Dr. LeCouture is at, which is Sloan Kettering and MD Anderson and Yale and the Harvard system, we are participating in a global project in which we are accessioning information on our cancer patients in the context of COVID, whether, you know, what happens if they did catch COVID, are we seeing something different? We are, this is, uh, and, uh, and what we're looking for is what we call a signal. Is there a signal that, you know, that something is happening here. To our best knowledge, and uh, uh, we have not found that uh, that there is uh, a signal of uh, increased uh, toxicity or otherwise in people uh, with skin cancers getting COVID vaccination, or for that matter, or for that matter, uh, catching the COVID um, infection. Um, you know, whenever I give a program in which we talk about COVID, I always ask the, the moderator to make sure that if you ever taped this, to put a date on it. Because uh, as we are looking into the information database uh, in real time, we may see something in the future what we're seeing now. But as of now, to my best knowledge, we're not seeing anything that, uh, that raises a flag uh, in this setting. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a telephone question, um, Michelle. Our question comes from Hani Zakum. Your line is open. Oh, hi. Um, Hello. Are you hearing me? Yes. Yes, we hear yes you clear. clearly. Yeah, I wanted to know. Um, I've read a bit. Uh, I've read a bit about how. Um, uh, sorry, uh, UV blocking um, uh, uh, lotions can be dangerous and cause cancer. Is there any truth to that, or is there any preferable type of uh, uh, UV blocking lotions to use? Uh, Thank you for that question, um, honey. Um, uh, Dr. Wong, if you could address that. Sure. You know, there's been uh, some thought that these things get into the skin and by themselves cause um, sort of cancerous changes. To my best knowledge, again, that's something which is more theoretical than real, and there's not been a spike in uh, when we look at the databases of people getting um, uh, sort of these lotions that they're putting on their skin and uh, their higher risk of cancer. Now, having said that, you know, I I always uh, tell folks the num uh, I, I, and I by the way, I've uh, every time Dr. Couture talks, I take notes because I learned something from him. Um, we in our society spend a lot of time talking about the SPF number of our, you know, of our sort of, uh, 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 um, you know, these skin lotions that are protecting us from ultraviolet radiation. But Dr. Lecture makes a real uh, point about making sure you reapply them consistently through the day, and especially if you're sweating. He says every 30 minutes, but some people sweat enough that 30 minutes may be too long. Where I'm getting at is if you look at folks that live in desert climes, you know, their major uh, strategy is to wear clothing. And that's what I've been telling my patients as well. Yes, you can use uh, any variation of these sunblockers, but the reality is that their effects are really quite modest. They're temporary, and you have to reapply them every 30 minutes. That's, you know, and, and who does that? I don't do that. I can't even because I just don't think about it. I'm doing my own thing. So uh, uh, what Dr. LeCouture said about wide-brim hats and clothing is very much the point, and that's what I tell my patients being the, the front-line maneuver in, uh, in sort of uh, having skin protection. I also say that, we, that I'm not advocating that they actually start living in caves. I don't want that to happen. The sun is enjoyable. We actually have endogenous endorphins that, that come up when we are in the sun. It feels good to be out there, and we're, we're – and there are some healthcare benefits, uh, having lived in, in Canada for a while, of having some sun exposure. We all know that. It's when it, it's when it becomes excessive. So I always folk, I tell folks that to be sun smart. Do you really need to wash a car at noon with a shirt off, right? Do you really need to go play, uh, to practice uh, uh, swimming in an outdoor uncovered pool at, at, uh, at the blistering noon sun? Right? Think through these things, right? And... And uh, having a wide brim hat, sunglasses, uh, you know, wearing long trousers if you are out and doing something for long-term exposure uh, are all thoughtful things. And even then, uh, you can get caught out. I always re tell my patients about the time I went fishing. I don't go off fishing very often. 
which is why I came back with a sunburn. So even though I was totally, you know, garbed up, I didn't realize the sun can reflect off the ocean and get me under the chin. So I had the misfortune of having to come to work with raccoon eyes. You know how you have these, you know, white eye, white white uh, areas around your eyes, the shape of your sunglasses after too much sun exposure. I had to come and suffer through a week and uh, two of seeing my patients in clinic, skin cancer clinic, with raccoon eyes on my eyes because from uh, excessive sun exposure. So even the best of us uh, don't really uh, cover every eventuality as we live through life. Very well said. Excellent. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And I have a question um, about um, one of our participants. How do I get the most out of telehealth appointments related to skin cancer concerns? Okay. I think, you know, Dr. Lekasher and I have some commonalities in our in our um, discussions. Uh, write things down. Be prepared. That's the number one thing. And try to have the best possible conference as, as you can because if you're in an area which is not private, then, you know, when I say something like, please show me that spot that you're worried about, well, we don't want you starting to have to disrobe yourself in public, right? This is, or, or having a situation where you can't do that. So having some privacy and some knowledge about that, especially in this particular area of skin cancer, is very important. When you're starting to have rash, sometimes I'll say, well, is it in the wet areas of your body, the wet areas of the mouth, uh, 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 the genital areas, the armpits, right? That's very, very important because uh, there are some skin rashes that only go there and others that never go there. And you can immediately sort of rule some in, rule some out. So that's one of the questions I might ask someone, you know, can you show me, quote, unquote, the wet, or, uh, wet areas of your body? Can you show me the areas uh, underneath, in a woman's case, your breast? Because that's sort of more moist, why skin behaves differently there. And some, some rashes always go there and some never go there. So uh, that's an example of situations in which we might want to have a, a look at these things, right? And again, I say no one ever died of of, of embarrassment. So there's there's uh, because we can't see each other. There's a heightened expectation I have with my patients, and I start by telling them, you know, interrupt me, uh, jump in, yell if you have to. Right? Uh, doctors are notorious for droning on and on and on. Maybe like I'm doing now, um, you know, and because I don't know, we just we just uh, that's what we do. So uh, uh, you as a patient have to sort of. Uh, equalize sort of the, the the time opportunity to speak and 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 jumping in and interrupting is is okay in my case and and if you need to you can always apologize for, uh, as you do so but just but do that do that. Excellent, thank you. And another question um, about just the care is is skin care different for everyone? How do I know exactly what to use to protect my skin? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And so the, the the answer is no. Skin is different for everybody. And also the situation you're in uh, makes a difference. Um, an, an example I use often is uh, as a former Canadian when I practice in Canada, especially at this time of year, everybody's furnace is on. Humidity in the, in the, in the house drops to very low levels because the heat just sort of sucks out the humidity. So, so unless you are in a Canadian house with a built-in humidifier, your skin's dry. And there are a whole bunch of conditions that occur between December and March uh, in people's skin in Canada, which are very distinctive. You never see that here in Texas, except for last week when we had the ice cospelets with uh, the ice storms. But ex except for that, which happens once every 10 years, High humidity and uh, and moderate to high temperature is a norm here. We see a different sort of context. So, skin is different. The context is different. Right? My friends who practice in Arizona see something different than my friends who practice in the Northeast in Boston. So, yes, all different. And that's why um, uh, when you are having a discussion with your uh, your doctor, uh, you know, sort of to to have this is the thing that's very difficult about about. Um, virtual visits, you know, to be able to see, touch, and feel the skin, super important, right? And ju judging from what we see there, we may prescribe one thing for one person and something different for another person whatsoever. Excellent. And another question uh, for you, Dr. Wong. How can I deal with the um, anxiety surrounding whether something is normal on my skin? What is acceptable to bring to the attention of my care provider? So a general principle I have is uh, once you're past puberty, 
things that, that change in your skin are worthy of attention, but not all things that change should rise to the level of attention. So what do things that do? Things that form uh, 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 lumps, bumps, or nodules, growths to be exact, right? You want to attract them. So some, for the most part, these are benign, but you want to know about them, number one. Number two is things that change in pigmentation. Either way, whether they get lighter or darker or deserving of attention. Now, uh, what I tend to do is, is to work collaboratively with a dermatologist, and you will come to, over a period of time, understand what it is that worries a dermatologist and what does not worry them. So, uh, you know, I had to, you know, I was talking to my mother who's elderly, and she's talking about this gray spot on her skin and a pigmented spot. And when she saw her own family doctor, the diagnosis was <laughs> aging spots, which she was not happy with. So not all things that change in color are pathological or disease-causing. Some are normal. So I tell folks that, you, that if you have something of concern, bring it up with your family doctor or dermatologist. What are the things that, that really rise to the level of concern are lumps and bumps that grow and continue to grow and don't stop growing, right, and increasing in size, uh, lesions that are changing in color and pigmentation suddenly, right, uh, deserve to be pointed out, right? And remember, your, um, uh, your even your dermatolo own dermatologist and family doctor cannot see cannot see or understand your skin better than yourself. So if you have an area of worry, please bring it to their attention. And I, like I said in my own portion of the talk, in case you missed it, in this area of cell phones, take a picture, please. And because things like color and pigmentation are important, I tell them use the most consistent light that you have, which is sunlight. So, you know, um, it doesn't have to be direct sunlight, but I say go by a window, make sure you have the same sort of lighting because that helps uh, bring out the uh, uh, pigmentation on a consistent basis. So, uh, so these are just general considerations, uh, but really if you have something of concern, make sure you bring it to the uh, attention of your home practitioner or your dermatologist. Andrew Hansos, maybe a last question. What are genomes and how do they affect treatment? Are there risks? Right. So genome is sort of the complement of the DNA that's in your body. We have, every single one of us, are made up of cells. And these cells come together and they make tissue and organs. And from that, uh, we make a, a person. Uh, each of those uh, units, the subunit of all that, is a cell. Inside the cell is a nucleus, and inside the nucleus is DNA. And DNA contains the information uh, to make a copy of you. This is the stuff of science fiction. It's not quite as easy as it makes this to make it sound, but that's what it is in principle. The complement of your, the complement of your DNA the, that makes up you is different from person to person to person. That, what makes the, the DNA that makes up you is called your genome, right? All that stuff which comprises 78,000 genes, and each gene can make a protein. So sounds pretty complicated, and, and to, to some extent it is. But when these go aberrant, uh, these have to, uh, that has to do with changes in uh, some of the DNA that's in your body. And, and when it does that, in certain circumstances, the change in the DNA that's called a mutation then causes changes in uh, the, the protein, which then causes changes in the cell, which then causes changes that can make a tumor. Now, some of these genes are very, very important because we call them driver mutations. The presence of that mutation converts that gene from benign to malignant. It's the stuff that makes the good go bad. And those driving mutations are so important that we have developed drugs against them. And an example of that in this particular uh, talk today is the, uh, uh, the hedgehog pathway. Some of the, there's, a, uh, there's a mutation which in the hedgehog pathway which drives basal cells, which are normal in the skin, to become basal cell cancers. And because it's, it's a driver mutation, a drug that can put the kibosh on it, a drug that can stomp on it and stop it from doing its bad uh, action, will reverse the cancerous process. And that's how hedgehog inhibitors work. And that's how, why it, uh, hedgehog inhibitors are the cornerstone of treatment for basal cell carcinoma. 
And um, one other question from another participant in terms of the um, the, the new immunotherapy for, um, if you could say a little bit more about that as well. Sure. So it turns out that the immunotherapy for basal cell carcinoma and for its grain cell carcinoma is the same. Um, Simiflimab uh, is the generic name. Liptayo is the uh, is the trade name. Uh, in this area of squamous cell carcinoma, uh, pembrolizumab, also known as Keytruda, has also done the clinical trials and gotten approval for that. So uh, those are the immunotherapies. And I didn't say any, very much about that, and Dr. Mezzer, you had a question about that in your telephone poll, which is clinical trials. Everything I talked to you about today, be it immunotherapy, hedgehog inhibitors, all came to be possible because of clinical trials. People always say to me, am I a guinea pig? Uh, uh, no, because before it even gets to people, there's been extensive work done on it to even get to the part where we can give it to people. And in oncology, we can't just open a cupboard and say, hey, take this, because what dose do you use? What are the potential side effects? How does it work? You know, and how, how, how often does it work and how often does it not work? All that comes from clinical trials. So what I'll tell patients is that clinical trials is a mechanism in which I can get to you the newest drugs, but we all have to do it in a regimented, consistent way. So, and most of the time, this is done in multiple centers. You know, there were dozens of centers that came together to do the basal cell carcinoma trial and the squamous cell carcinoma trial. Because of that, I can tell you the percent chance of something, of good things happening, the percent chance of side effects. I can tell you what kind of side effects happen. And, and that's the information the FDA takes under consideration. Either gives it the thumbs up or thumbs down. I remind everyone the FDA is there as an act of Congress formed in the early part of the 19th century, the later part of the 18th century, as a response to snake oil salesmen who were selling these medicinal compounds without proof. So they are a, 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 a entity put together by Congress to protect the American people. And when the FDA gives its approval, that's a powerful indicator that the trial has been done and proven scientifically to work under certain conditions. And those conditions become the indication for that drug. In other words, uh, you know, uh, uh, semifimab is approved for use in basal cell carcinoma after the use of hedgehog inhibitors, so on and so forth. Those very specific situations are where it's been tested. So I want to end on that because without clinical trials, none of this talk would have been possible. So in terms of a takeaway, uh, your takeaway from the call, for, you want people to take away from the call today, most important? Oh, tons of great things, like Dr. Likutra, great <laughs> therapies happening in both basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma. And to get there from here, and it requires a close collaboration with their healthcare team. Don't be shy. Be proactive. Be the person asking questions. Uh, uh, find out what your team is expecting uh, the drug to do and not do. And, and, you know, find and make sure you have a clear line of communication with them. That's the best situation. I'll end on that. And, and again, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this program. Well, I want to thank you, um, Dr. Wong um, and Dr. Couture, and this has been an amazing, just a phenomenal program today. Uh, we'd love to do another one soon because there's uh, so many new things happening we're hearing about. Um, so I want to thank our speakers, and I also know that I want to thank all of our participants for your great questions, both on the telephone and online, and also, um, and I know you still have questions. So in terms of you're still having questions, whether you asked a question today, um, heard something that was new to you, we want you to go back to your treating healthcare team and bring up the question again with them so that you can get because they know the most about you. That's a very important thing. But we also know that many of you um, like to do a bit of research on your own sometimes in addition to talking to your healthcare team, which is really important, of course. And so um, at the end of the program today, you will be receiving um, a survey monkey evaluation of the program, but it's in addition to it being an evaluation, which we always appreciate your filling out, you will also receive also resources that um, may have been mentioned during the program or that we want you to have um, as a place to go um, to get further information. Um, so we will be giving you for a number of resources um, that um, you will be able to access to get further answers to your questions, but we still want you to go to credible sites. So we're going to give you a couple of credible sites to go to. That's really important for you to have. And then, um, but also go back to your treating healthcare team because, again, they have all your records. That's really important. Now, as we conclude the program today, 
I do want you to be aware that you can access services for free from Cancer Care. And if we don't have the services, we'll be sure to refer you somewhere that does have the services you need. So we don't want anyone to feel that um, that um, we're the only organization out there. We are an important organization out there. But if, again, we don't have the resource, we will be sure to get you to the resource that you need. Um, and um, many of you um, may feel, um, you know, uh, more alone than ordinarily, really because of the context of um, of COVID-19. Uh, and so we want you, in as much as we've made some advances, nevertheless, we do have to continue wearing masks. People are pursuing getting vaccines as they appropriate with their healthcare team. Um, however, um, we also know that people may feel a bit more alone than usual um, during these times, and we want you to feel that taking advantage of a support group or talking to someone and getting support um, from an organization can often help to cut through that sense of isolation that you may feel at times, even working out um, closer connections with your healthcare team um, through telehealth so that you can actually ask them questions. You don't have to always go in for the appointment. So we want you to know that there are services out there for you and to take advantage of them. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.